Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. Today we are continuing our coverage on COVID-19. As the disease spreads across the United States, we're still learning something every day about the disease and its management. And so we have back with us again today, Dr. Greg Poland, who's an infectious disease and vaccine expert at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Poland, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. This is important work. We're keeping you busy coming to talk to us. Great, thank you. I wanted to start today with a practical question. I wear contact lenses. We've all been told that we're not supposed to be touching our face to avoid uh, transmission by contact. And so I'm wondering, should we not be wearing contact lenses during this time? Or do you have any recommendations in that way? Yeah, yeah. But you know, I, I don't think the issue is so much the contact lens as it is hand hygiene before inserting or taking out the contact lens. So you certainly want to wash and that you don't want to use an alcohol-based hand rub because you'll, you'll feel it in your eye, but wash your hands well. And we've provided resources for that before inserting and taking it out. Now, um, I have moved to wearing glasses uh, years ago because I never really was very comfortable in contacts and I would find myself rubbing my eyes, doing things like that. So if it's not comfortable for you to wear them or you're having dry eyes and having to touch your eyes or put in liquid tears or something, it probably would be preferable to wear glasses if you could. But I think the main point would be it's a reminder not to touch your eyes, your nose, your mouth. That makes perfect sense. You know, there's been a lot in the news about antibody testing. Mm. Yeah, at Mayo Clinic, we're developing an antibody test that's likely to be released next week. And I'm wondering if you could explain for the general public what antibody testing is and how it might be helpful. So uh, this is to distinguish between the diagnostic testing, which is a molecular assay called an RT-PCR assay. That's the testing to determine are, are you currently infected? Do you have the virus? The serology testing or antibody testing is testing that will be done to determine have you been infected in the past? So by saying that, one recognizes some limitations of that testing. It's not meant to be a diagnostic test. And in fact, you could be actively infected in the first days of the infection and the serology test could be negative. And the reason for that is it's measuring antibody made 10 to 14 days after infection. So so that's one important point. But the uh, second important point is it would be very useful, helpful, even reassuring to people to know, have I been infected and I am potentially protected now? Imagine in the workplace. So for us at Mayo Clinic, knowing that, uh, in fact, I'm waiting to get the test myself after having had some symptoms, but uh, it would be a great help to know if I had indeed been infected and have recovered from that and now able to take care of patients uh, and not necessarily need certain kinds of uh, personal protective gear and save that and make that available for my fellow healthcare workers who maybe are not immune. So very helpful in knowing that. The other thing that it can be helpful for is in diagnosis in a different way of speaking. Uh, If I knew that my serology was positive and now I come in with symptoms that might look like COVID-19, that would be a trigger to my doctor to say, 
well, very likely this is something else and we need to test for influenza, human metanumavirus, you know, whatever it would be. I remember hearing when I was a child that you could never get chicken pox twice. Hmm. So my parents, I had some friends with chicken pox and my parents took me right over uh, to visit to see if I could get the chicken pox and get it over with. Does the fact that someone has antibodies to COVID-19, it's a different, obviously a very different virus than the one that causes chicken pox, but if you have the antibodies, does it mean you can never develop the infection again? That, that's a really important question that you've asked, and we, we don't know the answer to that. What I can say is that there are four seasonal human coronaviruses that circulate every fall. Immunity to those, for reasons we don't understand, only lasts months. With oh. SARS-CoV-1, what we call SARS back in 2002, that immunity lasted between three to six years. Studies really weren't done past that. So we don't know with this. I, I neglected to mention that one other benefit of antibody testing is you, you would be able to identify candidates who could donate plasma in order to provide antibody that could be used in other people and help treat them. Can you tell us a little bit about, that's the other thing we're hearing so much about is the plasma and the, the studies that are going on. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how it might help others? It's a really uh, important bridging therapeutic. And the idea here, is, which goes back prior to the great influenza pandemic in, in 1918, a colleague of mine actually wrote a report outlining how useful that was back then. So the idea is to take serum or plasma from people who have had the disease, recovered from the disease, and now take their antibodies, infuse them into somebody who's having a very severe case or you know, rapidly deteriorating and protect them. The other thing that it can be used for, and uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with, prior to when there was a hepatitis A vaccine, if you were gonna travel to say Mexico or other places that had hepatitis A, you would get, an, uh, in the buttock, you'd get a shot of immune globulin. Well, those were antibodies that were derived from somebody else. So you could use that. Let's say you had an anesthesiologist might be a good example, actually, where they're doing procedures, pulmonologists that are generating aerosols. You might give them that immune globulin in order to passively protect them against infection we'd have to figure out for how long, would it be 12 weeks or six months, but somewhere in there, so that you could, you could deploy them without risk. That leads me to another question. Thank you for that great explanation. At Mayo Clinic, we've been having uh, an increase in our blood drives to try to get blood products for, mm -hmm. for patients who need them during this time. Is it risky for patients to receive blood from someone who may potentially be infected recently with COVID-19 or at any time? And are they testing, do you know if they're testing patients before they get blood? Yeah, great question. I'm not aware of the specific testing that, that Mayo and others may be doing, but I am positive they have guidelines sure. on, on how to do that. And it may vary somewhat from facility to facility. So uh, you, could, you could check that. But no, I don't think that it's, it's risky in that regard where the risk would be is in not having the blood supply that we need. Uh, some of the patients who deteriorate and have very severe disease have coagulopathies and 
cytopenias that we need to treat by giving them transfusions of platelets or of fresh frozen plasma, et cetera. So we have to keep that blood supply going. You know, I think one of the most amazing things about this pandemic is how we see people pulling together, neighbors yeah. helping neighbors, people being kind to one another and giving each other grace. In the scientific world, there's been an incredible amount of already published regarding COVID-19 and collaboration. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that and how that, that works within the scientific world and how are they managing to do this so quickly? Yeah, you know, you put your finger on something that I think many of us have noticed. The way I characterized it is we really were kind of a, a me culture and we moved to we. And we've even gone from there to talking about eternal things, uh, which I think is also important in our holistic health. But in terms of collaboration, you know, this is a remarkable thing. It, it, it's, it's hard in all the busyness that we're involved in to really get your head around the fact that the, the canvas that we will call SARS-CoV-2 12 weeks ago was blank. Nobody had ever heard of the virus. And when you think of the number of publications, the number of studies, the number of patients and organizations and governments and scientists involved in generating information just in 12 weeks, it's amazing how that canvas is beginning to be filled in. I mean, all the way to the genetic level. This has never happened in mankind before. We are living through, really, we are creating history here. And, and it's worth pausing to, to think about that because I, I think it gives some context for thinking through the level of our efforts and the weariness that some people feel. And uh, you're starting to hear reports, uh, particularly in the hard-hit cities, uh, of burnout. But I, but I think if you can frame it in almost, in a sense, warlike terms, uh, you realize the value of what we're doing. We certainly get offers for collaborations, and we have, in my own laboratory, we have collaborations in, in the Netherlands with the CDC, with the NIH. I mean, it's actually been a marvel to see how quickly those can be formed and information shared, new research protocols written, uh, et cetera. I, I can say for, for our own Mayo Clinic, the number of research protocols that they're having to deal with uh, shows, number one, the intense scientific curiosity of, of our own staff and our ability to stand those studies up very quickly in the service of mankind. And uh, I'm very gratified, uh, as you might be able to tell, by, by how Mayo has responded and other institutions too. But Mayo is particularly prepared, and, and I think we should celebrate that and be proud of that. It's wonderful. We, we get so much attention to the clinical side of what we do at Mayo Clinic that a lot of times the research maybe doesn't get as much attention, and so it's really mm. neat to see that coming mm. to attention. True. One of the things that you said earlier struck me, and it's interesting, it's something that I thought about too, that it's really amazing that in this time of social distancing and enforced sheltering in place, how people are making an effort to reach out to one another. Mm. I think of colleagues who are working from home and they're arranging virtual happy hours and virtual book clubs and things that maybe they wouldn't have bothered to go to before, but now they're making the effort. And so I think that it's amazing how uh, we can pull together to um, still stay connected and to show kindness 
kindness to one another in the world, even in the midst of this. Yeah, very, very much so. And, you know, again, Mayo has uh, in many ways led the way here in terms of using that same technology to connect with our patients. Right. And I think, I think that's really important that we not only be connected colleague to colleague, but to our patients. It's the blood of what we do. You know, uh, all of us at Mayo Clinic know those same seven words, the needs of the patient come first. And the technology, the telemedicine has allowed us to do that. The formal and even informal technological connections that you're mentioning, I think are really helpful because we share information. Even when we're socializing, we you say, hey, you know, I saw this kind of problem. What are you doing about that? And and that's, that's really helpful. My daughter is a mental health professional, and she talks about the second wave of this pandemic will be a pandemic of mental health issues. And uh, she would endorse very much what you're saying, is that that kind of connectiveness is important. And while it's physical distancing, it doesn't have to be social distancing and isolation in terms of that connection. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, how science and uh, humanity connects. It's very interesting. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share with us today, Dr. Fullen? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of things that are uh, important. Um, we are very likely in the next few days, I think, to begin to see a downturn in cases. That, that's my prediction. It's speculation. And I think it's, it, will, it will show the proof of sort of the sheltering at home, the social distancing, hand washing, respiratory etiquette, all those things are important. But what I think is really important for our listeners to know is that that does not mean we diminish the efforts. If anything, we look for ways to intensify them. And that's because of the lag period with the incubation period of this virus. Once we start to see a decrease in cases, what you hear people talk about bending or flattening the curve. We have to keep on with this for 14 to maybe 30 days more after that. And that's really important. You know, worldwide, we're standing at just over a million cases now of this. And, and of course, that's an underestimate just because you, you, we haven't been able to test everybody. In the U.S., just in uh, a short period of time, we've gone from 80,000 cases to almost a quarter of a million cases. And, and at this particular point this morning, a little over 6,000 deaths. Now, at one level, compared to other countries, it's remarkable that we have kept them at that level. And I think it is a testament to our healthcare workers, to our healthcare system, to our general level of preparedness, but also Everybody that hears our voices has a role to play, and that role is to keep suppressing this disease by doing exactly what we're doing. We're working from home, we're using telemedicine, we're keeping our social distance. Those are really important, and let's not let those wane as we naturally, being uh, a people who like to live in community, uh, we're anxious to be over with this, but, but not too quickly. We've always said that knowledge is power. And I think that just the uncertainty of this is so anxiety-provoking. How long will it go on? What, what will life look like? What do you foresee 
you talked a little bit about how we would know when we were done that it's a certain time period that would need to lapse after the cases begin to fall. What do you think life's going to look like? Are we going to go back to eating out and everything being open all at once? Will it be gradual? What do you foresee there? And I know this is a conjecture I'm asking for. Sure. Um, well, you know, one, one way to think of it, and, and I think it is a useful framework, is a friend and colleague of mine, Scott Gottlieb, who was the former FDA commissioner, he and, and a group called, I think it's the American Enterprise Institute, has released a roadmap to reopening. And while it's general and doesn't offer a lot of specificity, it does provide, I think, sort of a, a, a decision-making framework. And just roughly characterized, that framework is a phasing back in. I think what we'll see as soon as we start doing some of the serologic testing that we talked about is we'll start realizing that we'll reach a certain level of herd immunity by the number of people who are now recovered and immune at the same time that we see a decrease in the number of new infections. And very likely what we'll do is we'll phase in back to normal, if you will, in terms of how and what kinds of schools we open, uh, how widely you open the medical gates, uh, so to speak, in terms of back to business as usual. But I think there'll be some things that will be fundamentally changed. I think this has provided, if, if you can look for a silver lining in, in what is a very dark cloud, I think some of those silver linings is that we'll take respiratory etiquette much more seriously we'll probably see the use of um, more widespread masking during influenza season, which I think is really important to protecting our patients. Mayo already has a policy where we all get a vaccine to protect our patients in essence and, and one another. I think we'll see new and more innovative ways in terms of uh, being able to take care of patients remotely and with telemedicine. And I think, um, yeah, I think we will go back to the social things like restaurants and sporting events, but we'll probably phase those in carefully. What I'm anxious to see is what happens in terms of education. I mean, from uh, elementary school through university and medical school and graduate school uh, teaching, we've realized there's a lot you can do with tele-education, tele-distance learning. The question is, what do we miss? when we do that, and, and those things still have to be worked out. But I, I'm gonna take it that as we come out of this, the lessons we've learned will actually be things that we'll look back and be thankful for how we instituted them and how we now use them. That's great, so this may be a great educator for us. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Poland, for joining us today. We're, I know I have certainly enjoyed visiting with you and learning from your wisdom and knowledge. And I look forward to meeting again. Thanks so much for sharing information with us on uh, the mm -hmm. pandemic that's currently going on. And thank you so much for all the work that you're doing uh, with colleagues to uh, keep us safe. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, of course, it's a team. I mean, uh, my, my own daughter-in-law, who's a nurse, flew to New York City yesterday. And she's going to volunteer at one of the hard-hit hospitals for the next 10 weeks. And I, I think that's just reflective of all of us and the amount of effort we're all putting in to, to combat that. And this is a time I'm very proud to be one of the team. Yes, to see the selfless nature of the work that, mm -hmm. that people are doing. Thanks yeah. so much, Greg. Have a Pleasure. great day. Thank you.
Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.